my freshman, my sophomore year of college at RIT, I had the pleasure of moving out of the dorms and into an apartment. And I had three roommates that I had met. I knew them a little bit. And I was really, really excited. And we had a lot in common. We had a common faith. We, had, we were adventurers. We liked to travel. But I would say one of the, the you know, crazy things that we did was that we were tricksters. We were practical jokers, and we loved to have fun at others' expense. And one of my roommates in particular, his last name was Raj, R-A-J. And that is an Indian last name because his father had come from India to do a PhD in physics and had married an American and so stayed on. And so here's my roommate with this last name, Raj. And the root of that word is emperor, king, and, or, or uh, you know, somebody above another. And he loved to have fun with me because my name, my last name is also an Indian last name, Damdar. And my family is about 150 years removed from India. I grew up in the Caribbean in Jamaica. And my, the root of my name means goat herder or cattle farmer, right? So in our fun, he would every now and again just drop it and just remind me that he comes from a long line of kings and rulers somewhere in India. And then I come from this long line of herders and farmers somewhere in India. And so we would have fun. And one year, his father came to town, and his dad would come through, spend a weekend, you know, shop for groceries, and it was just his father and I, and we were just sitting on the couch, just chatting, and his dad tar- starts to tell me the story of him coming from India, settling in the States, getting married, and when he became an American citizen, they asked this interesting question. They asked, what would you like to be called? It turns out, when you become an American citizen, you have the option of changing your name. And right away, I got really interested. I said, do tell. He said, well, you know, I had a name that I did not like. And all this time, I've been living with this name, which means the butcher in India. And so when the U.S. government says, what would you like to be called? Of course, I thought, I want to be a king. So I just put Raj. It turns out that the butcher and the cattle farmer were actually a pretty good pair of friends. And I reminded my roommate of that. Today we're going to be in Genesis 32 and in a message called A New Name. And this is where Jacob changes. He gets a new name. But what we're going to find out this morning is it's more than just a new name. It is a change in destiny, a change in direction of his life, of who he is. And up until this point, you'll remember, Jacob is the younger of Isaac's sons, his twins. Esau is older, and Jacob has cheated his brother twice. First of the birthright, second of the blessing. And when Esau is cheated out of this blessing, he's furious, and Jacob has to run for his life. And he runs to his uncle Laban. And he goes there empty-handed, just with a staff. And he meets his uncle, and he works seven years, and then another seven years to get married. First Leah, and then Rachel, and then he works an additional six years for all of his cattle, and all of his goats, and everything that he owns. So 20 years he's worked for Laban, and he overhears a conversation 
from Laban's sons, and they're grumbling because God has transferred Laban's wealth to Jacob. God has blessed Jacob. And Laban's sons are grumbling, and they're saying, everything we have has been given away to this man, Jacob. And Jacob realizes that. He overhears that conversation, and God says to him, leave, go back to the land that I have promised your father and your father's father, and I will be with you. So Jacob packs up everything he has, and he heads south, and he's going home to his welcome home party. But to get to that land, he must pass by his brother Esau. And this is where we meet him in the story. In Genesis 32, verse 3 to 8, he is about to meet his brother Esau, whom he has not seen in 20 years, who was furious when he left. Verse 3 reads, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Sir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Servants, I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. This is not the welcome home party that Jacob was hoping for. 400 men in tow with Esau is not a good sign. And right away, Jacob, the, strict, the, the trickster, the planner, comes up with a plan. And we will see that. But he does a second thing, which I think you and I often do when we're in hardship. We have a plan, and he says a prayer. And the prayer is a simple prayer. It simply says this, Lord, you are the one that told me to go back. You are the one that said it. And when I came across this river, this brook, I had nothing. And so please save me. Be with me. And so in verse 7, this is what Jacob does. This is his plan. In great fear and in distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him in two groups. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attack one group, the group that is left may escape. So that his, is his plan. He's going to divide the troops in, group, in two. Because here's, here's what has happened. When he left his uncle Laban, he left in secret. And when Laban finds out, he goes after him. And after seven days, he catches up to Jacob. And Laban is furious because he's taken his, his kids, his daughters. He's taken his grandkids. And he's taken all the wealth that Jacob has accumulated. And he's furious. And they can't come to an agreement. But God has told J Laban not to touch Jacob. So they make a, a pact, an agreement, a covenant that they're going to go their separate ways. And they're not going to cross into each other's land. So Jacob has no option of going back and coming towards him is his brother Esau with 400 men. And he is right outside of the promised land, the land that was promised to him. And that night, 
we read this encounter in verse 22 to 26. It says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. And as he wrestled with the man, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And in this passage, the main point that we learn here is that the goal of faith is total dependence on God. The goal of faith is total dependence on God. What's happening? In the passage, Jacob sends his wives, his kids, his servants away, and he is alone at night. And there are two characters in the story. The man, we found out, is actually God, a theophany, a visible form of God to man. And this has happened before. You'll remember Abraham sees God. First he thinks it's a man, and then it turns out it is God. And then Jacob sees God, wrestles God right here. And then later on we'll see it again. Moses will encounter God, a theophany, in the burning bush. And the children of Israel will see God as a cloud in the sky. So Jacob is actually wrestling with God. And it is God that takes the initiative to fight with Jacob. It's not Jacob that is picking a fight. It is God that takes that initiative because God is bringing Jacob to the end of himself. God is bringing Jacob to the end of himself. And God is not necessarily just interested in the outcome of this fight because God can easily win. God wants Jacob to realize that he cannot fix everything by himself. Because what God wants for Jacob is exactly what Jacob wants. It's a blessing, but God will not give it to a deceiver, a trickster, which is who Jacob is. God wants to give it to somebody else. He wants to give that blessing to somebody else. One commentator says this, The conflict brought to a head the battling and grouping of a lifetime. And Jacob's desperate embrace vividly expressed his ambivalent or his conflicting attitude to God of love and enmity, of defiance and dependence. It was against him, not Esau or Laban, that he had been pitting his strength. Now he discovered Yet the initiative had been God's, as it was in the night, to chasten his pride and challenge his tenacity. And we realize here that it was not Esau, it was not Laban that Jacob was fighting. It's actually God. And God is bringing Jacob to an end of himself. And at the end of this encounter... God touches Jacob's hip and leaves a permanent mark 
changes the way that he walks, so he has a limp. And I believe there's two reasons God probably did that. The first is, God has appeared to Jacob in the past in a dream. And when Jacob wakes up, God wants him to realize that this was not a dream. This encounter, this wrestling really happened. So when he wakes up and his walk is permanently changed, he knows that this was not a dream. The second reason I think God did this, touching of his hip, was that, remember, Jacob had both a prayer and a plan. And the plan is, let's divide the party into two, send one group ahead, and if Esau harms that group, the rest of us will run away. So his plan is really to run away, as he had in the past. And God has now taken away that option because he can barely walk straight because of this limp. There is no way that he will be willing or he will be able to run away. The goal of faith is total dependence on God. And so we pick up, we follow the story, Genesis 32, 27 to 32. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Then the sun rose up above him, and he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And the main point here is that grace, not negotiation, is the only solvent of guilt. Grace, not negotiation, is the only solvent of guilt. And God asked Jacob, what is your name? Because he wants Jacob to admit who he is. Because his name Jacob means usurper. It means thief. It means holding on to his brother. And so by saying, what is your name? Jacob has to admit who he is. And God gets him to do that. And God gives him a new name, Israel. God gives him a name that means God contends. May God contend, persist. And Jacob asked God, what is your name? And interestingly enough, God does not tell him his name. God will tell Moses who he is. But at this point, Jacob does not know God's name. And when daylight comes, God is gone. And Jacob as well is gone because the only thing that remains is a new person, a new man, and his name is Israel. And this is more than just a new name. Many of you, 
like me, my wife and I, have probably had the privilege of, of naming your kids, right? Exciting. In my case, I had actually made a deal with my wife. She had a, a really special name she wanted to name a daughter if we had a daughter. And, you know, when we were dating, I was in love. And I said, of, of course we can. And our firstborn was a daughter. My wife then reminded me of my promise to her, which I did not like the name. And I, I, I broke my promise because, you know, I just said, sure. Um, so she reminds me of that. But then we had a second child. So we've named two of our kids. But I will tell you, in terms of naming, our third child was the most special. I'll show you a picture of our son, Leo. And this is a picture of Leo coming home with us in the Rochester airport. And Leo was adopted at two and a half. And in his case, we did not just give him a name. We actually changed his name. Because when we went and brought him to us, we brought him into our family into our tribe, into our church. And to do that, we changed his name. And we gave him the name Leo. He's the only child that we have that has a name from a great-grandparent or somebody else in the family. And of course, we gave him our last name. And this is what is happening in the passage. God isn't just simply changing Jacob's name to Israel. He is changing his identity, his destiny, his way of doing things who he belongs to. And so the past is in the past because Israel is now a completely new person. Grace, not negotiation, is the only solvent of guilt. And so how does the story end? Chapter 33 tells us that Jacob will meet his brother Esau. And in chapter 33, verses 1 to 4, we hear the end of the story. Here it is. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. And he threw his arm around his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And this reminds us of the story of the prodigal son coming home to meet his father. This embrace is not what Jacob expected his twin brother has missed him and embraced him and kisses him. And we found out, we find out that it is not Jacob's plan that had worked out. His parties that he's divided into, his escape route, that has not worked out. What has worked out is his prayer. Because God has changed Esau's heart. And it is this. Prayer, not planning, is how we begin to access God's promise. Praying, not planning, is how we access God's promises. I want to show you a picture of a Greek mythological story. And some of you 
are going to make your ninth grade lit teacher very proud because you will know that this is the story of Sisyphus. Sisyphus is king of Corinth, and he's a trickster. And he makes all sorts of problems for his peers. And so his sentence is to roll this rock up the mountain every single day. And at the end of the day, the rock just rolls back down. And this is his burden, his destiny. That's what he does every single day. He rolls that rock up, and down it comes back down again. So if everybody, anybody ever approaches you and tells you, I've got a job for you, it's a Sisyphean task, you need to run away. Because it's a task that cannot be done. And I, I throw this up there because I think, like Sisyphus, like Jacob, some of us are on the run, and we have burdens. And we do our best in our own strength. And we roll that rock up the hill in our own strength only to find the rock rolling down the hill at the end of the day. And we try our best in our own strength and every day it comes back down. And that is our burden to carry. And we have been carrying it for some time, like Jacob. And today, I want to suggest to you two of these burdens that God wants you to release. Because to, re to receive God's blessing, you must release your burden. To receive God's blessing like Jacob, you must release your burden. And the first burden I see in Jacob's life, in my life, and maybe in your life, is self-sufficiency. The need to be in control. The pride that you have it all together. It could be in your own life. Maybe it's the control in your marriage, in your kids' lives, in your career, in your business. You feel you have it all together or you need to have it together. It's an illusion. We do not have control of our lives, of our kids' lives of their destiny, of our business, of our career. If anything that we have learned in this pandemic is that nobody has control. And God says to Jacob, and God says to you, and God says to me today, release that burden. It is my job to fulfill that, not yours. I am in control. Release it to me. I want to take that burden for you. You know, there was a time in my life when I was in grad school, and I was at Roberts Wesleyan College, and as a student, I was very responsible. I never called my parents and said, Mom, I've got five bucks in my checking account. I was never that guy. I would work two or three jobs, and I always had enough money to pay rent, to pay my cell phone bill, and gas and car insurance. I always tried to do that. And I was in grad school at the time, still an international student, and had very limited options to work, right? I can only work on campus. And I remember one semester, I couldn't get a job. I networked, I did all I could, and I just could not get a job. And I watched my bank account go down and down and down and down, all the way. And I got to the point where, as responsible as I was, I couldn't do it. I, the money just wasn't there. And I cried out to God, and I prayed a short prayer. I said, God, 
you've said that I should seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and everything else will be added and that I shouldn't worry. So God, that is what I'm going to do because I cannot manufacture a job or any kind of money here. So I'm going to seek first your kingdom. You're going to have to do the rest. And the week later, I'm walking through the basement at school and I end up in the sociology department. It's not a department I was part of, but I ended up there and I meet this professor. He comes out the door and he starts talking and I recognize he's from Jamaica like I am. And he has an accent and we start chatting and we connect. And then towards the end of the conversation, he says to me, Sherwin, you know, I'm working on another thesis, another PhD, and I have a research project and I would like you to help. And right off, I had to say to him, look, I'm not from your department. I don't know if I qualify to help you. And he says, well, it's interesting. I'm doing research, and I've interviewed a bunch of older Jamaican women. I need somebody to transcribe and help me write this up. And nobody can understand what they're saying because their accent is so thick. So you are uniquely qualified, and I can make an exception for you. And he said, will you work for me? I said, absolutely. So I got that job. And then he worked again, he worked his network again and got a second job. And God provided for me. And it is not any plan that I could have come up with on my own. It is God that actually took control and provided for me. So, what is it you have to give up? Is it that self-sufficiency, that pride that you have it all together? How about this? Here's a second one in, in Jacob's life. Guilt. Maybe that burden that you're rolling up the hill every single day is your guilt. Maybe a failure in your life. Maybe failure in marriage. Failure with kids. Maybe an addiction. Maybe an illness. Maybe a job loss. And you have that guilt that you've held on to. And as you hold on to that guilt, God cannot bless you. Because to receive his blessing, you have to release your guilt. And so let me give you a new identity. One that is not based on failure. On what you have not done correctly. One based on who God says you are. A new name. A new person. Not based on race. Not based on anything political. Not based on anything else. Ephesians 1 Verse 4 to 8 says this. Listen to how God views you. God describes you. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, for he lavished on us. And in these few short verses, listen to the way that God describes you. He says, you are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. We are grace lavished. That is our new identity. 
This is who we are. And so you have to release these burdens to receive God's blessing. And as we close, I want us to surrender. And what I will do, what I would love to do is just to say a quick prayer of surrender. And what I want you to do is hold out your hand if you're comfortable right here or at home. Just hold out your hand. And this is your expression that God, I am going to release my burdens and I'm going to receive a blessing because your hands are not big enough to have both. You have to release if you want to receive. And so let, let me pray for us as we close and you just listen and you receive God's blessing. Here is a prayer of surrender. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own, you have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love, your grace. That is enough. Amen. Well, you do one last thing. If you said that prayer and there is something that you have released in that prayer, tell somebody. Tell somebody in your small group. Tell your spouse. Tell a friend that you trust. Tell them what you prayed and what you released. Have a great Sunday. Thank you, everybody.